Welcome to CII's podcast, The Voice of Corporate Governance. While this podcast is open to the public, the majority of our work is only accessible to current CII member organizations. If you would like information on becoming a member of CII, please visit our website at cii.org or contact our Director of Membership, Melissa Fader, with her email, melissa at cii.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor John C. Coates, the John F. Kogan Professor of Law and Economics at Harvard Law School. Professor Coates is the author of a recent research paper entitled SPAC Law and Miss. Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today. Delighted to be here, Jeff. Thanks for the opportunity. Professor, in your paper, SPAC Law and Miss, you use the term deep fraud a half dozen times. Can you explain to our listeners, what do you mean by the term deep fraud, and why is that term relevant to special purpose acquisition companies? Sure. The phrase deep fraud is something that I came up with to convey the way that promoters of financial products, and in this case, SPACs, deploy legal myths to generate fees. It's it's deep fraud because it's not ordinary fraud. They're not lying directly to a client to get a fee. They're not engaged in a, in a fraudulent transaction. What they're doing is sort of disseminating ideas about the law uh, to people, many of whom believe them and repeat them without knowing that they're wrong, although some might. Um, and even when they do know, this deliberate disinformation campaign is not subject to ordinary laws against fraud because those laws require deception to be relied upon in a way that directly harms the listener. What's happening here is the markets are being saturated with myths spread through business journalists and podcasts like this one and conferences and similar channels. And those um, that distribution of myths has effects, but they're kind of indirect and insidious, uh, but no less real. Professor, many have alleged that your former employer, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission, changed SPAC accounting rules in 2021 to require that certain SPAC warrants be accounted for as equity. Why are those claims a myth? And does the myth have anything to do with the fact that two accounting firms handle nearly all of the SPACs leading up to and during the SPAC surge of 2021? So that claim that the SCC changed accounting rules uh, is a myth, one of the myths that I identify in my paper. It's a myth for three at least three reasons. First of all, the SEC, you can just go look at the public record, took no votes on SPACs in 2021. Um, What people might be meaning, but they often don't, they're not clear about, is the staff. But even there, the only people who spoke on the subject, uh, individual commissioners and staff, they don't have, I didn't have when I was at the SEC, the power to change rules without a commission vote. We don't change accounting guidance. Um, uh, on our own. We do put out guidance documents, but uh, and we did put out one on, on Warren Accounting when I was there. Um, but those documents all say in plain words, this does not change the law. And accounting firms and law firms representing companies 
have never been shy about telling the staff when they think they're wrong. In fact, there's an example from 2005 when a law firm did just that about a different spec warrant accounting issue and managed to convince the staff after some lobbying efforts and you know persuasive efforts of the, of the typical advocacy kind uh, that the staff had just gotten it wrong. Nothing like that happened here, by the way. And in any event, it's not a rule change when the staff puts out an interpretive statement. The third reason it's a myth is because the accounting that was applied during 2021 did not change at all. It was longstanding. It was published by FASB and its accounting standards code over 10 years ago. And in my view, at least, relatively straightforwardly should have led to the accounting that uh, the SPACs are are now using and have all adopted uh, since uh, the late spring. The reason that you may have heard that the SEC changed the rules, in my view, is that the leaders of one of these two small, they're no longer small, actually, but two SPAC-specialized accounting firms, one called Markham and, and another one, have publicly said that we changed the rules um, even while the companies that they audit have now acknowledged uh, in various settings, both in their own financial statements, uh, engaged in restatements often, or in less public settings, that they just simply miss the issues. Um, I'll note in passing that Markham here is the firm that was censured by the PCAOB over its auditing of China companies a few years ago. In any event, it's important to remember that the SPACs, the structure of them, involves the sponsors who end up eating all of the costs, including audit fees, if they can't pull off a deal. So they have a, a fairly strong incentive to keep price pressure down on all of the service providers during the first phase of a spec structure, uh, not only as a percentage of deal size, but in absolute terms. Um, I've found $15,000 total allocated audit fees uh, for several specs that have gone public in the last couple of years. That simply doesn't buy too many hours of an auditor's time. And while SPAC accounting, relatively speaking, is simple in the first stage of a SPAC's life, there are still procedures they've got to be carried out. They've got to verify there's a trust, money's been put into it, um, that their SEC documents match the records and so on. Uh, and if you do all of that work, that really doesn't leave a lot of time for rereading the underlying FASB guidance, which is fairly lengthy, much less le reading dozens of lengthy and detailed specialized SPAC agreements and then comparing the two. So I think the fact of cost pressure probably led, for understandable reasons, a lot of the audit work being done for SPACs over the past couple of years to be done on a kind of copy and paste basis. They weren't going back and re rethinking all of the issues for each one of these SPACs. Professor, in August 2021, 60 law firms signed a public statement indicating that SPACs are indisputably not investment companies under the Investment Company Act of 1940. Why is that statement a myth? And what would be the impact on SPACs if they were determined to be investment companies? Well, um, SPACs are investment companies, as that phrase is ordinarily understood. I mean, the only argument really to the contrary is that because they fall within a safe harbor uh, of the SECs um, for certain purposes, uh, and because they're primarily hunting for a business for other purposes, uh, they shouldn't be regulated as investment companies. And so I like nobody's really fighting whether they are or aren't investment companies. They're fighting whether the regulations apply. 
There is another SEC rule that clearly provides a safe harbor for a SPAC-like vehicle, one that's hunting on the hunt for a business, but that has a limit of one year. Without that safe harbor, a lot of the SPACs that went public last year, by the way, had two-year SPAC periods, and some in the past have even gone up to three, which the stock exchanges permit. Um, The issue then turns on what does it mean to say the vehicle is primarily in the business of hunting for a company or simply holding the securities that it indisputably holds, typically government securities. Neither of those words, primarily or business, is defined clearly in any SEC rule. It's not been interpreted clearly in the SPAC context by courts, and no one has really sort of um, taken a case all the way to a resolution under the Investment Company Act to test how far courts will let companies like SPACs go. Are they going to think the one-year limit, which has been applied in the past by courts, is the maximum, or are they going to give more flexibility in this context? So while I don't think that um, SPACs clearly are investment companies for all purposes, I also don't think it's true to say they're clearly not. I think it's just an open and uncertain legal issue. And the law firm letter that you referred to does not make that clear. In fact, if you read it, it reads like what lawyers typically call a clean opinion, which means there's really not a lot of issue. Uh, It does not read like a reasoned opinion, which a lot of law firms will put out from time to time, where they go through the analysis and then they come out saying, here's what we think should be the law, although we, we recognize the issue is debatable. In fact, we know that these very same firms, who at least the ones who work for SPACs, were not really taking the stated views that they put out at face value because they advised their clients to include risk factors in their SEC filings that basically identify Investment Company Act risk as a risk. So in the public filings, they say one thing, and in this legal statement that's out there uh, floating around, they say something much simpler, much more um, conclusory, and and to my mind, much more misleading. Professor, the SEC has a project on its current agenda to propose rule amendments relating to SPACs. In your opinion, what specifically should the SEC propose And can you provide us with an outline of your economic analysis in support of your proposal? So I think SPACs have something, maybe several things, important to teach us about capital formation generally. It may well be that with good disclosure and a good understanding by investors that they offer benefits that outweigh their costs um, in some contexts. So what I would focus on, if I were still at the commission, would be um, reviewing their disclosures, making sure that what's unique and specific to SPACs is clearly and straightforwardly disclosed. And in particular, conflicts or at least divergences of interest between sponsors, the target companies they're doing deals with, the pipe investors that are brought in to help fund the, the acquisitions, and the public shareholders Uh, who invest during the the, the SPAC period, they all have slightly different payoffs depending on the nature of the deal that's done. And right now, the disclosures about those divergences are not as clear as they could be. So that's where I would start. Um, I would then go on to focus in addition on trying to help investors understand the magnitude of the potential divergences. And this is a suggestion that a couple of other academics, uh, uh, Mike Klausner and Michael Oregi at NYU, have been uh, have been suggesting that uh, SPACs ought to, to 
you know, make some straightforward and reasonable assumptions about how many shares are redeemed and how many warrants are exercised, and then take that information to the data. Here's what we could earn as a sponsor if that happens, and here's what would happen to the public investors. That would be then equivalent to the underwriting spread disclosure in a customary IPO document, because in a SPAC, most of the real cost of the, of the process is in the form of dilution. So quantifying that dilution in a straightforward way would be a second thing I would focus on. A third thing that, uh, that I think should be focused on is whether the sponsors, I think that's the easiest case, or the pipe investors in some cases, and possibly the financial advisors at the DSPAC stage should be treated as underwriters and, and have a, 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 an affirmative obligation to do due diligence on the company and the disclosure they're making at the DSPAC stage. Um, those three, to me, would be a good package. Um, I don't think in the end that I know of anyone, even in the SPAC side, that fights the idea about clear disclosure of the kinds I've sketched. They probably would resist the underwriter liability idea. Um, and so that will be an important debate. Now, you ask about economic analysis, and here's what I would say. It's still early days. One of the things that I am, have been harping on for years, and I will keep harping on probably until I retire, is that economic analysis to be good needs data. And if you want quantitative cost-benefit analysis, you sometimes have to wait and see. You have to see how investments play out over time. And sometimes things go wrong while you're waiting, but there's not much you can do about that. You can do qualitative cost-benefit analysis. But again, there, I don't think there's anything terribly controversial about the idea that disclosure in general is worth it in the public offering context. Um, one thing to note is that one in five of last year's DSPACs is already the subject of a pending lawsuit, whether a securities lawsuit or a Delaware corporate lawsuit. And as we watch the outcomes of those cases, we're probably going to learn more about the costs and benefits. Some of the SPACs certainly have been misleading the market with outlandish projections. Others have been more cautious. And I think in the end, the markets may well do a fair amount to discipline the product in light of these, uh, these uh, lawsuits. Uh, in the meantime, I don't think uh, there's anything wrong with adding disclosure. For anyone, finally, who doubts the, the cost benefits on disclosure, just notice that companies that try to raise capital in Russia, where, let us say, the rule of law is less clear and disclosure is less reliable, they pay a 30 or 40% discount when they're trying to raise capital. Their cost of capital is enormous, vastly larger than the cost of making decent disclosures under US law. So I, in the end, for me, the cost-benefit analysis is not really quantitative at this point. It's more judgmental, but pretty compelling. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Professor John C. Coates, the John F. Kogan Professor of Law and Economics at Harvard Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F -F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. 
The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.